There's a rocky promontory that juts into the Tyrian Sea, about two hours south of Rome. Called Monte Circeo, it was formed through the original processes by which a group of barrier islands, over millions of years, drifted into the west coast of the Italian peninsula, pushing up the Apennines Mountains that run lengthwise down the middle of the country. It's a lush, verdant forest atop dense, silty clay marl and paleogenic sandstone that rises dramatically from surrounding marshlands and then descends just as abruptly into the blue-green ocean. It derives its name, Circeo, from the myth of Circe, the witch encountered by a battle-worn and weary Odysseus was said to reside here among the twisted evergreen oaks familiar to the Mediterranean, along with olive trees and Italian buckthorn. On October 1st, 1975, a car of cabinieri are driving up the slopes of this tranquil area familiar to vacationers and the Roman elite, who own villas scattered around. Circeo is known foremost as a place to relax and maybe have a party with friends. You can throw open the windows, walk onto the patio, take in the view, climb out onto the roof with a bottle of something, take a nap, have some friends over, go to town, pick up a bite to eat, throw yourself on the bed, wander down to the rocky beach below or over to the sandy beach nearby. Return to the villa sated, not tired, not filled with energy, but in some state of reverie and contentment. It's unusual for the Carabinieri to be paying house calls here. It's kind of, it kind of ruins the vibe, and they don't have good directions. They take a left, the hotel with the red sign, turn down a road that's only partially paved into Monte Circeo's Punta Rossa neighborhood. These are some very rich villas, some two, some three stories, always in close within a perimeter of forest behind a gate, so you can't actually see the villa itself. Finally, they come upon the black gate of wrought iron tangled like tentacles of some deep sea terror. Entering the property, they find the window wide open and nobody home. What they find upon gaining entry to the two-story villa through the window is nothing short of astonishing. The house is in serious disarray, almost as though it had been ransacked. Things were strewn about, but not as though someone was in search of something, more like a group had made rough use of the place and then left after a haphazard and pathetic cleanup attempt. Even more, there are bloodstains on the wall next to the phone in a kind of spray pattern. Something must have gone desperately wrong here. And just then, a car roars into the parking lot and the matron of the place jumps out. The carabinieri kind of block her out of the crime scene, asking her why she's there. I had some things to take care of in the house, she responds. This hardly helped clarify matters. Because what had happened in the house was completely outside of the bounds of some things that one would have to take care of. In fact, word had gotten out about the serious violent crimes that had been committed. She'd seen it in the morning edition of Messaggero, and then on her way to Monte Circeo, in a special edition with her son's friend and his bulging eyes pictured on the front page. She told him to stay away from that Angelo, a real monster. This is the story of one of the most terrible crimes of the 1970s, Il Massacre del Circeo, a crime so grievous and yet so expected that it came to kind of represent political despair embedded within the cultural conflicts that marked a combination of general crisis and the deep economic stratification. Immense wealth and privilege, fascist excesses, and sadistic currents running through Italian life weren't a relic of history books. They were alive, as if rising like a terrifying phoenix from the coast of Monte Circeo. Okay, hi everybody. I'm Alexander Reed Ross, host of the Years of Lead pod, and I'd like to start this episode by saying that if you're re-traumatized by themes of violence, particularly of the sexual kind, involving descriptions of violent acts, this might not be your episode and you might not want to listen. Feel free to tap out at any time, as this one is a doozy. I've been grappling with actually not doing an episode on this one, 
simply because it is that desperately awful, but I decided that it's such an important event that I would be remiss to ignore it. A lot of this reconstruction is taken straight from court documents as well as testimonies from one perpetrator and one victim. I also drew on the semi-autobiographical book The Catholic School by Eduardo Albinati, which won a top Italian cultural prize and was turned into a movie called The Catholic School, which you can find on Netflix. It's actually very well done, tasteful, and treats the subject with the depth and gravitas that it deserves. So. Our story starts several days before the Carabinieri would wind their way up half-paved roads to the scene of a depraved crime. We're going to go back to September 25th, always 1975, about two hours' drive from Circeo in the heart of Rome. It's daytime on the tree-lined Viale Regina Margherita outside of the Empire Cinema. Two girls, Donatella Colasanti and her friend Nadia, are just leaving the theater after seeing a movie, but they're kind of out of their element. These girls, around 18 years old, are from the Ur district, about an hour away by bus. More out towards the southern periphery of Rome, the Ur is a worker's district where those of the lower classes live in big apartment complexes among the fascist architecture created by Mussolini to mark the Esposizione Universale Roma. And today, they've taken a trip into town to see a movie in one of the more opulent neighborhoods of Rome's historic bourgeoisie, Quartiere Trieste. A very calm, very beautiful neighborhood, the Quartiere Trieste has been inhabited since before Rome was even a city, and it's littered with historic and beautiful monuments to the city's past. There's a St. Agnes Basilica nearby, there's the soothing fountain of Piazza Caprera, the sweeping park of Villa Ada, once the stopping grounds of the Savoy nobility, and the various structures, old and new, that house the established families of Rome. Celebrities, doctors, architects, and so on. Donatella is tall, with curly, dark hair and dark eyes that almost seem deep-set against her high and prominent cheekbones. It's difficult to imagine her gaze back then, given the fact that it has since been hardened to the effect sometimes of cold steel like that of a combat veteran. At that time, though, on her day out in Quartiere Trieste, she was still trusted. She still trusted others amid the bravi ragazzi of the well-heeled elites. So, she and Nadia are thumbing a ride back to the station from which they can go back home, and a nice guy pulls up in a clean new Fiat. He gives his name as Carlo as they pop into his vehicle, and they start driving, chatting. He's very polite, obviously rich, but. What they don't realize is that Carlo is not his real name. It's Giampietro Parboni Arquati, and he's hiding some more secrets behind the assumed identity. This Carlo, really Parboni, was a member of a kind of gang of kids growing up in the Quartiere Trieste who knew no limits and wanted to test the boundaries of reality. In general, Rome's most privileged youth were known as the Pariolini, for the similarly wealthy neighborhood of Parioli. The neighborhood Parioli was their symbol because it was a very wealthy neighborhood and thus housed the creme de la creme of the fascist establishment during the Ventennio. These kids went to the best schools, had the best vacations, and didn't understand the word no. But while the Parioli was the major geographic symbol for these right-wing kids, something like Piazza San Babila, the fascists there were more limited to the more simple Piazza Euclide and Piazza delle Muse on the neighborhood's frontiers. Parioli was too serious for the raving madness of fascist kids. Quartiere Trieste, on the other hand, was where the action was. According to Albinate, the entire quarter was basically fascist in those years. Here, the fascists were feared but also looked at with astonishment because, quote, they're openly fighting to establish a more unjust society, as unjust as is humanly possible, and they take this struggle as a point of honor. In a system that seemed to be becoming more progressive, these guys were struggling to maintain the status quo, which meant trying to destroy the system. So, 
Parboni, so-called Carlo, was in one of their more decadent sets, a group of high school bullies, basically, who revolved around the Instituto San Leone Magno, lying about 20 minutes' walk from the Empire Cinema. This is a Catholic school where priests hold sway and professors inculcate students into the tradition of the haute bourgeoisie, from the high philosophical canon inclusive of Plato, Machiavelli, and Nietzsche, to delving into the Baroque artistic innovations of the late Renaissance. Certainly a place where intellect is respected and nourished, the SLM, as it's called, also has a dark side. Parboni, so-called Carlo, and his friends indulge themselves in this life at the expense of their fellow students. They become the lords of the children of the elites, using particularly sexuality and violence to show their status as unchallengeable and dangerous. Albinati was a former SLM student, and in his book he says, quote, They believed that they were free men authorized to break all laws, all convictions, all shame, all pity, all fear of punishment, which are nothing other than the, quote, knots that fools use to bind themselves. Those who feel themselves constrained by the rules are simply weak and cowardly. Selfishness is the only non-hypocritical form of action on the planes of both individual pleasure and the general economy that governs the world, the suffering of a single creature is irrelevant. Anyone unwilling to do whatever is required to obtain that which is useful to him or gives him pleasure is faint-hearted. We all know this story, right? I mean, I went to a religious high school where we had to go to chapel every day. I learned the Bible to argue with Christians, dedicating myself to exposing the corruption of that which the religions hold to be pure and holy. When I was in high school, I was, I was sort of an insufferable Nietzsche geek in a way and wanted to reveal hypocrisy among crusading elites. So I think this is fairly normal for young nerds who are starting to feel their oats and break out of their family's sheltered existence or whatever. Uh, in a way, though, I thank God that I hadn't grown up in Italy in the 1970s. The flashpoints of political clashes, the explosions of violence with all the complex and layered characteristics of class, politics, and culture made for an extremely volatile climate in which people were drawn to extremes. For the kids of the Roman bourgeoisie, this became especially pronounced. Here's Albinati again. Quote, It's fun to be rich and out of control. This explains at least... In part, the character of the youthful protagonists in this story in the era in which it takes place. On the one hand, they had grown up, as people once said, coddled in excelsior, spoiled by their families, attending private school with young foreign ladies as their nannies, protected from any impact, swaddled in precautions designed to ensure them against any wound as they encountered the tiny hindrances of life, and thanks to this miraculous immunity, they could push into the opposite extreme, into the danger into the realm of danger and violence, convinced that they'd always get away with it. Every new provocation expanded the horizon of their liberty, marking a new distant point, so distant that once they'd returned to home base, to the trusted hideouts of the little villas of the Quartiere Trieste, they were convinced that they were well out of reach, untouchable by the consequences of their actions. Indeed, that these actions could possibly have, by their very nature, any consequences whatsoever. They grew up with the deep-seated certainty that they had the right to do anything. So this was the supposed Carlo, a real bully in school, who, rather than the conventional stereotype of the American sports jock, layered onto his brutality the ideological construct that, as we will see, was purely fascist. They did stuff like put a cigarette out on a younger boy's arm, a boy who would go on to kill himself some months later. But for now, Carlo's playing nice, even if inside he's seething with the power that he feels over these two working-class young ladies. He drops Donatella and Nadia off at the station and gets their number, and they arrange to meet for a date the next day. Now... I don't know how the world works and why some people are catastrophically unlucky or, for that matter, why others have unimaginable luck. 
Anyway, what defines luck other than those things that can happen to you that fall beyond your control? It's all contending with the unknown and perhaps unknowable. But here, Nadia had a standing arrangement to go to the amusement park with her girlfriends, so Donatella brought another friend, Rosaria Lopez, a lovely young woman about 19 years old, in Nadia's stead. So, Donatella and Rosaria show up to the big tower of the Ur, the special exhibition for the World Exposition held in Rome amid Mussolini's architectural pretenses to empire. The tower, known now as Il Fungo, juts up into the sky with a restaurant in the round so you can kind of see the panorama of Rome. This man that they've been calling Carlo meets up with them for an aperitif or whatever at 4 p.m., but he's brought two of his friends, a 19-year-old man named Gianni and a 20-year-old who looks more like 15, calling himself Stefano. And here's where the second flight of bad luck happens that afternoon. This man Stefano is not on the calendar for this meeting. He had run into the so-called Carlo at the Piazza della Muse, one of the Pariolini's favorite hangout spots, and decided to tag along. Sinuously thin and small, with bulging blue eyes that perhaps spoke to the quantities of speed he consumed on a regular basis, this Stefano was really a man named Angelo Izzo. And I suppose I can explain now why Carlo and Stefano have thusly altered their names. They'd been involved in rapes in the area and didn't want to give away their intentions. Despite never actually getting in trouble for those rapes, they were insecure about whether or not their true identities would be known throughout the city at this point. And again, their names would be the least of what they were hiding from Donatella and Rosaria. Angelo Izzo was the youngest of four children, born in 1955 to a wealthy building engineer and a stay-at-home mother who boasts a degree in literature. This is another family of the Quartiere Trieste, part of what they call the Rome that counts, and Izzo's part of Gian Pietro's clique of fascist bullies at the SLM. One former classmate of Angelo's described him like this, quote, rich, handsome locks seized by a superhuman delirium. They had guns and money. They were sadistic and arrogant. He was the skinniest, the least rich, the most insecure. It was said that he was the mastermind of that gang of criminals, but he seemed to me only a weak and sickly boy. There were rumors that he was impotent. The other man, slightly younger than Izzo, was talkative but suspicious, a guy named Gianni Guido. This friend group read outside of the class assignments, into people like self-described super-fascist Giulio Avila, asserting that three social classes naturally existed among men. The dominant, the poor bastards, and the louses. That's how they described them. So, Albinati kind of strikes to the core of the radicalization process that these high schoolers were going through while dealing with and engaging in fascist ideology. More or less, they're just continuously driving themselves and others towards extremes, and when others don't want to participate, they're driven down and victimized so that these guys can feel more powerful. Quote, by opposing the left, fascism often and eagerly took on its very semblance, though reversing it, distorting it, and deforming it, so that it became even more radical than the left at its most radical. This is due to the intrinsically twofold nature of fascism present from the start. Fascism contains within it both repressive institution and impatient uprising, law and transgression, instinct for preservation, and childish delight in dilapidating, dispersing, and wrecking the very sandcastles it so lately built. The cult of order united with the apex of anarchy. Its secret ideal would be the wildest and most uncontrolled promiscuity, whereas its concrete practice took the form of a coercive control over all and any deviancy. The main problem with fascism is that you can never be fascist enough. You could always be more of a fascist. You can even be more of a fascist than Mussolini, more of a Nazi than Hitler. There's a sort of frenzy that can never be satisfied, a boundary that is always being pushed forward. 
Like all mystiques, the fascist mystique is bottomless. There's always someone who can criticize you for being lukewarm, totalitarian, but not wholeheartedly totalitarian, loyal and trustworthy, but not blindly so, fervent and daring, but only by half, and if that someone is lacking, then the inner fascist that can be found in every fascist will interrogate himself. Now, I think the same thing is generally true of masculinity in a lot of ways, but anyway... I think in literature on radicalism, this is called upbidding. Basically, everyone hypes the other people up into doing things that they wouldn't do, per, that they wouldn't do personally, because it raises the bar and pushes people to carry out intensifying acts of violence. Ito would later state, quote, I have never committed something, let's say, alone. It was a form of bond that existed between us, like a blood pact, like proving to be increasingly cruel, always more ferocious, and this somehow self-legitimized us as supermen. And if this sort of person is known to us, so are his views on women. Here we have something I might call an extreme Jordan Peterson syndrome, or rather, a kind of incel ideology. Itzo again, quote, I believe that rape has to do with man's primal instincts. Hunting, chasing, catching, hot, scared, shivering prey, my excitement is based on this sneaky and humiliating mechanism, possession, the woman who is dominated, the bondage, the pursuit of your only pleasure. So, there are all sorts of psych psychological profiles on Ito, some of which are annoyingly simple or just plain bad, but there's one piece I want to share with you because it reveals some of the underlying currents in Itzo's tendency, and those currents are repressed love of men. So this is from an essay called La, La Perversione di Morte, Il Caso Angelo Itzo, by scholar Irene Bovenga. Quote, he appears morbidly tied to the bond of friendship, so much so that it turns into adoration towards those who are only considered up to your level. In analyzing his homosexual aspect, it is necessary to pay attention to the particular attitude of homophobia, the phobic tendency to avoid and despise homosexuals, which leads him to repress his physical desire towards close friends and which is expressed in all those ideologies of which it promotes, in the true sense of the word adhering to Nazism, to the rejection of the different, of the homosexual, of the weak, of himself. Murder, robberies, violence, crimes are the glues through which he tries and claims to keep his fraternal friends tied to him, but his latent repressed homosexuality ends up exploding and also resulting in a way to dominate and possess the other, as he himself recounts, quote, I had my first real homosexual relationship. It happened with a French boy. I wanted it as soon as I saw him. I wanted that body. I did the impossible to corrupt it. It went on like this for quite a while until one afternoon I practically raped him. So, within Angelo Itzo's group of extremely violent fascist bullies is this latent and tacit desire which they are kind of sublimating through their brutality towards other kids, not just other boys, but girls as well, of course. Bovenga continues, quote, Starting from Nazi fascist principles and under the push of latent homosexuality, he came to consider close friends as the only ones worthy of his level, and to theorize the inferiority of women and their use as considered only a piece of meat. In fact, Itzo would later recall violence against women became all the more urgent in order to disguise the desire for one another. Of course I wouldn't have admitted it then, he said, but there was probably also a homosexual side hidden in all this. That is, the thing about friendship, the group, the attraction you sometimes had for the friend that maybe you didn't want to admit, right? You didn't want to accept, and then it naturally led you to to instead exaggerate the womanizing side. With his constant use of methamphetamines and deep inner cravings, Itzo came to feel like the big leader. Itzo says, quote, I felt purer than the others, in that I felt like taking risks. That is, I was convinced 
that the others on the right were bourgeois. Yes, I thought they weren't taking risks on their own. It was violence dressed up in ideology. Of course, Donatella and Rosaria could not have known any of this as the three young men attempted to one-up each other, this time in terms of charm. With silver tongues, they convinced the two young women to meet them again, this time on Monday. Again, a roll of the dice. Nadia has really bad cramps, so Rosaria goes in her stead. On September 29th, that's a Monday, they meet at the Ambassade Cinema, just to the northeast of the Ur. This time, the one they've called Carlo is not there, though. It's just Itzo and Guido. Carlo has stayed home to finish studies. They tell the girls that they'll go to the beach at Lavinio, a way south. Carlo has a place down there and he'll be having a party later. The girls say they have to be home early, and Itzo remarks, kind of off the cuff, just tell them tomorrow that you were kidnapped and taken to a piney grove. It was taken as a joke. Oh, we'll bring you back early anyway. That kind of thing. And the girls agreed to go with them. They never went to Lavinio. Instead, Gianni Guido drove the Fiat 127 down to Monte Circeo, just in his first year at the Department of Architecture, Guido was from a rich family, of course. His father was a senior executive of, at a financial institution, and his grandfather was the health proconsul of the fascist regime in Somalia. He has wavy, dark hair that goes down a bit above his shoulders and rises above his eyes in a kind of unkempt quaff. Although the girls don't realize where they're going, they think it's a bit strange that the guys have to stop for directions several times, and once they reach the two-story villa in Ponte Rosa, overlooking the sea, they can't even find the light switch. The truth is that the villa belongs to the family of another of their friends named Andrea Gira, but that's not what they tell the ladies. By the time they've gotten to the villa, it's almost 6 p.m. Almost immediately, the two men get naked, and for about 30 minutes, they try to convince the ladies to have sex with them. Within half an hour, though, Gianni takes out a pistol and announces that he's a member of the Clan de Marsigliesi, a mafia gang that hailed from France and set up shop in Rome during the mid-1970s. Their leader, feared Rome crime boss Jacques Beringuer, had demanded the kidnapping of young women and would arrive any minute, Gianni warned. After 15 minutes of this idiocy, the guys locked the young women in the bathroom. From there, a detail of this story that came to light later would fascinate the whole nation of Italy. Gianni Guido doesn't panic. He doesn't go anywhere to blow off steam. He doesn't engage in immediate violence. No. With the ladies, 17 and 19 years old respectively, sobbing and locked up in a windowless bathroom in Monte Circeo, he returns to his family in Rome and eats dinner with them. He then calls up Giampietro and spends a couple of hours with him cruising around and not really talking about much. I'll quote from Donatella's account of what happened in the meantime. Angelo Izzo took turns taking us out of the bathroom, making us undress, and forced us to stay with him. But he was unable to have complete intercourse with me and Rosaria. Around 11, Gianni Guido returned. We cried we wanted to leave. They threatened to deflower us. This hell continued for a couple of hours until they locked us up again in the bathroom and threw us a blanket. Throughout this period, the guys are high on speed in particular and are developing this insane relationship with the women they've kidnapped. Itzo would later say, quote, I didn't realize that by throwing the girls in the bathroom, our friendship would be damaged and that would mean the end of any dialogue with them. He tried to persuade them that he's kind of a tragic character with whom they should sympathize, saying that his mother died of heartbreak during his period of incarceration in Marseille, a complete fabrication. But he's also forcing them to perform oral sex. He also insists that he participated in a noted kidnapping of the famous jeweler Bulgari, which was carried out by the Clan de Marsigliesi earlier that year. 
the two guys don't really sleep over the course of the night and come back to the bathroom at dawn, insisting that big mobsters are upstairs so the girls better not make a lot of noise or everyone will be in trouble. It's at this point that Itza recalled, quote, I started to get the impression that the girls no longer believed the stories I was telling them. They move the women to the other bathroom for a minute and then take them back to the one without windows. This is all accompanied by intermittent beatings, especially kicking the women on the ground and general brutality. After a little while, the faucet breaks and they came back in, trying to force Rosario to fix it. Nobody knows how that faucet broke. Again, probably just old pipes and really bad luck. Anyway, at this point, they separate the women between the two bathrooms, and in Donatella's words, quote, hell begins. Finally, at around 5 p.m., after almost a full day of torture, this supposed Jacques Beringuer, head of the Clan de Marseillesi, arrives at the villa. Of course, it's not Jacques. He doesn't even have a French accent. It's actually a guy named Andrea Gira, whose parents own the villa. He's a 22-year-old, so a bit older than Gianni and Angelo, and while Angelo Itzo is often presented as a sort of de facto leader of this group, it's Gira who is arguably the most violent. He decorates his room with Nazi flags and busts of Mussolini and Hitler, he takes inspiration from Evola, and he walks around with a pistol in his waist. These three in particular form the crux of what people in the subversive fascist movement called the dragon's egg, according to later statements by Itzo. Now, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to take anything Itzo says at face value. He's not just a liar, he's a special kind of liar who's also sort of a fantasist, so he believes some of his lies, or it doesn't matter, or something in between. Anyway, some of his story has been corroborated. The guys were members of a local section of the Movimento Sociale Italiano, the fascist party of the Italian Republic, as teens when, in 1971, Itzo was recruited into the paramilitary formation Avanguardia Nazionale and duly expelled from the Movimento Sociale Italiano. He says, quote, I was treated like a child prodigy. I was only 16 years old, and that climate of conspiracy excited me. Soon he joins the Fronte Nazionale, a semi-secret formation organized under the leadership of the Black Prince, Junio Valerio Borghese, which had sought to overthrow the Republic and launched an abortive coup in December of 1970. The Fronte Nazionale is believed to be connected to a series of bombings against civilian targets, whose climax was the Piazza Fontana bombing of December 1969, always made out to look like the work of left-wing groups in order to force society into crisis and bring about a state of exception that would have dissolved the parliamentary republic and formed a strong presidential system in its place. Through the Avanguardia Nazionale and the Fronte Nazionale, Itzo says he became acquainted with the leadership of Lotta di Popolo, a strange group that sort of fused the Maoist ideology prominent on the new left with ultranationalist positions. Together, they attended trainings where they learned how to create bombs using timers and a garage door opener. The first session he attended was taught by a Frenchman, likely a member of the Ultranationalist Secret Army Organization, or OAS for short, a group of pro-fascist army officers disillusioned with France's move to accept Algerian independence. The officers described as, quote, standing six foot seven, powerfully built, olive complexion, mustache, sunglasses. The second session was led by a Tuscan, also with a mustache, who he later discovered was named Mario Tutti, a man who would later go down as a mass murderer tied to the Black Order. Now, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to corroborate almost anything Ito says, but this one actually does seem to be true. It's corroborated by another witness. Underneath the bombings, of course, there was also drug trafficking and gun running. Ito says he became involved in processing opium into heroin at a farm in Kelowna, cutting it with lactose and dealing with the mob. He says that in 1972, he killed a former schoolmate from SLM. Things went on like this, as Itzo later declared, 
quote, It was normal for us to abandon a girl after pointing a gun at her. It was our pastime. We were a part of a political group linked to cocaine and heroin trafficking. We were in contact with the extreme right and with the secret services. On October 30th, 1973, Itzo, Andrea Gira, and a friend carried out an armed robbery of a gun collector on Via Panama in Rome. Their friend was this guy's son, which is how they knew about the valuables. They say they're returning a book. The door opens, they immediately put their hoods on and terrify the wife and two housekeepers who are at home. But police caught up with them, and Gira took all the responsibility, allowing Itzo to remain free. Sometime around then, Giampietro was supposedly taken to a villa owned by the mobster Frank Coppola, who'd been expelled from the United States and then driven out of Sicily by the investigations of Carlo Alberto Dalla Chiesa. Itzo was invited, but sent the so-called Carlo in his stead. And at the villa, a, quote, fascist comrade and officer in the secret services supposedly told Giampietro that he may be able to figure out how to support Gira in the court case, but that the magistrates involved were, to their misfortune, honest, so it was probably out of reach. These circumstances don't curtail the illegal activities of the dragon's egg, however. The following year, they rob a jeweler on Via Nomentana, threatening to murder his six-year-old son out of frustration because the man will not stop crying at the sight of their weapons. Afterwards, Itzo claims he carried out a bank robbery on the same street together with one of his accomplices and none other than Renatino de Pedis, a leader of the Banda de la Magliana, which I'll discuss in deeper detail in a future episode, I promise. During the fall of that year, Itzo carries out another robbery in Avezzano with Gianni Guido, and then shortly thereafter, the guys attempt to kidnap a girl from her Catholic school, but she's able to break free and escape into the crowd. In early 1975, Itzo provides weapons for a robbery at a post office in Tiburtino, and shortly thereafter, Guido and an accomplice rob a bank in Bologna. A few months later, it's an armed robbery at a post office in Marinas di San Nicola, and in July, Itzo claims that the group murdered Amilcare di Benedetto, one of their gang, who had stolen some loot from a robbery. They say they executed him with two shots from a revolver near Riccione, quartering his body, filling it with stones, and throwing it into the sea. Di Benedetto's body was in fact never recovered. And so here's where the Clan de Marsiliesi comes into sharper focus. Quoting from Itzo's testimony here, quote, Around June-July 1975, Gira had recently been released from prison and I had a semi-quarrel with him because he wanted to give me four million from the sale of two machine guns and four pistols. I didn't want that money, and I got annoyed with him for selling my stuff. Gira told me that he had sold the weapons to the Marsiliesi clan, people who had made headlines in that period. He added that he had come into contact with these people and told me that they would like to meet me. I let myself be convinced, and I asked Gira questions about these people. Since the name that circulated the most was that of Berenguer, I asked him if he had known him, and Gira told me that he was the last wheel of the cart, and that there were more capable people. He added that Berenguer had expired because he had made a mistake in the kidnapping of Ortolani by panicking at the sight of the police, and that for this reason they had made him disappear. In the following days, we were around July 1975, one evening I went with Gira to the Il Bolognese restaurant in Piazza del Popolo in Rome, and here he introduced me to two people, one who I later learned was Jacques Fourchette, and the other a South, African, a South American never seen again. That evening we spoke generally without addressing specific topics. I remember that we were armed and the four of us had eight pistols. This came out in our conversation. In August, I kept in close contact with Gira, going to the Cherceo, and one evening Gira told me that we could go together to Rome to see Forchette. We met, 
He told us he wanted to introduce us to other friends, and we went together to a piano bar near Via Veneto, which had a name like Far West or Cowboy. The owner of this place was a blonde and rather beautiful woman, who seemed to me to be intimate with Forchette and the other people she introduced us to. They were Bergamelli, who at the time had a big mustache, and two Romans, one of whom I remember the name, Enrico, who had a Kawasaki 900. Gira said they were wanted for kidnapping. So Bergamelli is Berenguer's co-leader. Ito also claims that his group killed a hotelier at the request of Berenguer because he owed him money. At this point, though, things are getting closer to home. In August 1975, Ito plans a robbery near Monte Circeo in Lacone, performing the role of a lookout, and Gira, along with Guido and an accomplice, kidnapped the son of a builder, holding him at Circeo for a ransom of 300 million lira. Later, the money from these crimes would be pooled into mutual funds. So, that's the story of the dragon's egg and the sort of story that Itzo spun about the group of friends that he had coming out of the Catholic school SLM. Again, we know that when Gira arrived at the villa his parents owned, he was pretending to be Jacques Berenguer. We don't know, in fact, whether Gira had met Berenguer or Bergamelli had introduced either of them to Itzo, that either of the two were a part of a drug running, uh, were part of drug running in the area, or whether, in fact, they had carried out so many robberies. It certainly seems clear that this wasn't their first rape, that they were enormous high school bullies, they did drugs, and that they did carry out crimes including robbery prior to the kidnapping. So, when Gira shows up, he takes Rosario Lopez to a bedroom and sexually assaults her. This was a foregone conclusion, but as Albinazzi explains, it's not the main point of the entire thing at all. Quote, Two attractive young women, alone at the mercy of a gang of perverts. What could the gang do with them? Rape them. The mind runs straight to that predictable consequence. Sexual abuse hovers over any girl who ventures to become independent autonomous. The same punishment will be visited on both the naive girl and the seductive one. Therefore, when all girls fall into the trap, the spectator ritualistically finds himself saying, well, you asked for it. But then the story moves on from that point. Rape is merely a passage, and not even an especially obligatory one. In the story, the rapists almost seem to be engaging in it against their will. Both girls are incredibly confused still at this point. Who's this guy Jacques? Where are we even? Are we really in Lavinio? According to Donatella, quote, Jacques took Rosaria by the hand and led her into a room. I stayed with Itzo and Guido. Angelo Itzo tried repeatedly to take me, but without success. And since Guido didn't like me, they kicked me on the back. Taking advantage of a moment of distraction, I reached for the phone and called 113, the emergency number, managing only to say, quote, they're killing me, I'm in Lavinio. At that moment, I was hit by an iron bar and fell to the ground. As they kicked me, I heard Rosaria's screams. After a while, I saw Jacques, and behind him, my friend was covered in blood. She begged him to let us go. At this point, the guys agree with the girls that they will put the two girls to sleep and take them back to Rome. They take out syringes and vials with red fluid, along with a rubber tourniquet. They take Rosaria upstairs and they inject both girls twice, but the girls are already dazed and distraught, in survival mode, and the drugs simply do nothing. The men take Rosaria up to the bathroom Donatella can hear the sounds of a struggle, ending in the sound of someone drowning. They had forced her head under the water in the bath and murdered her. Donatella tells what happens next. Quote, I was with Guido and Gira, and Itzo came down the stairs. 
They were breathless and tired, especially Itzo. The injection hadn't had any effect on me either, and so they started hitting me with the butt of their pistol. They hit me with fists. They tied my belt around my neck and dragged me naked throughout the house. I passed out for about ten minutes. When I woke up, I felt the foot of one of them pressing on my chest. Someone said, This one doesn't want to die, and they started hitting me on the head with an iron bar. At this point, I thought that the only thing to do to save myself was to play dead. The same voice as before said, We finally managed to kill her. At last, the men were completely exhausted. They think that they've killed both women, so they're starting to wrap them in plastic. This fails, however, because they're strung out and their minds are pretty much non-existent at this point. They roll the bodies in blankets and chuck them one after the other into the trunk of Guido's Fiat 127. Before they shut the trunk, Donatella hears one of them say, What good little sleepers these two are, followed by, Quiet, we have two dead women in here. Gianni Guido drives away in the Fiat, with Andrea Ghira taking Angelo Izzo in his mini. On the way back into town, Angelo and Andrea stop to get a Coke. In their adult state, they forget to pick up their change, and finally, they return to the quiet streets of the Quartiere Trieste. Not thinking he'll ever see any consequences, and believing the women to be dead, Gianni Guido simply leaves his Fiat parked outside the garage of his parents' apartment, meets up with Andrea Ghira, and the two decide to get gelato. Meanwhile, Ito walks around the streets on his own, sort of pacing around the neighborhood in a really whacked-out state, stopping at a street faucet to wash his face, passing the house with the Fiat, and then passing it again. When asked later about why he took part in the 36 hours of torture and violence against two defenseless women, Itzo replied, quote, The sense of domination over the other person. Or maybe we too were prisoners of a role, in the sense that probably no one would hold back because if I said 10, there were those who had to say 11, and those who had to say 12. He also explained that this was a sick act of friendship with Gira and Guido. He wanted, quote, something that would bind them to me forever. From the white Fiat 127 starts to arise the sounds of fists banging on the hood and the moans of an injured woman. A lady who lives in the building calls the police, and at about 3 a.m., a night watchman comes by to open the trunk. And there is Donatella Colasanti, battered and covered in blood, next to the body of Rosario Lopez. Gianni Guido is arrested almost immediately, and Itzo is picked up wandering around the neighborhood. Andrea Gira was never even suspected at the time, so he manages to flee. Word of the violent crime spread throughout Rome, and then Italy, almost instantaneously sparking widespread horror, particularly at the salient fact that these were upper-class Roman youngsters exploiting the working class of the periphery. In the words of Albinati, the Massacro del Circeo brought together reactionaries and progressives at a single blow. Until this point, rape had been published within a system that oscillated between harshness and almost wholesale tolerance. Judges seemed uncertain. Then, all at once, privilege was turned upside down, suddenly becoming a disadvantage. Lotto Continua, the extra-parliamentary left-wing group, declared, quote, These young men are looking for two girls to rape and then throw them away massacred. They're looking for two girls to satisfy their male power. They look for the poor so that their power as masters may be satisfied. Confining this infamy to fascism is an operation of convenience, the exasperation of indiscriminate violence and the ideology of catastrophe are the two opposing but converging tools to infect the proletariat, to pass off its own end as the end of everything. The sowing of tribalism, racism, sexual violence, everyday aggression, from automobile civilization to sports cheering to police state of siege, compulsion into common crime, the planned destruction of drugs, a state industry in the United States, a rotting industry in Italy, and alcoholism, fear, 
the cult of force. All this is part of the, the attempt to cover up the class war with the war of all against all. The nonsense about our country's entry into the ranks of mature countries of imperialism, about the end of a peasant culture and morals, as well as a humanistic bourgeois culture and morals, according to the reactionary themes of the expositionists of the petty bourgeois ideology and the nostalgic revisionists of Catholicism, has nothing to do with it. So, the leaders of Loto Continua organized a march through the Parioli, the wealthy neighborhood commonly associated with the high officers of the fascist regime. Whereas any other time the police would have met this sort of march with extreme violence, the march coursed through the streets uninhibited. The prosecutor's main line of argument was not so different from Loto Continua, accusing the two defendants of, quote, the crime of the strongest against the weakest, of the male against the female, of the young man from Parioli against that of the suburbs. For the famous author, Italo Calvino, quote, These monstrous incidents present themselves with the truculent coarseness of café bravado, with the certainty of getting away with it, a social strata for which everything has always been easy, a certainty that makes one go from beatings outside school to carnage in villas at the weekend in no time at all. On the other hand, the poet and film director Pier Paolo Pasolini responded directly to Calvino by pointing out some hypocrisy. He writes, quote, The poor of the Roman suburbs and the poor immigrants, i.e. the young people of the people, can and do effectively, as the chronicles say with frightening clarity, the same things that the young people of Parioli did, and with the exact same spirit that is the object of your descriptiveness always giving away enough to tell on himself, but not enough to get in trouble, Pasolini continues, quote, The young people of the suburbs of Rome have hundreds of orgies every evening, they call them batteries, similar to those of the Circeo, and besides, they too are drug addicts. The killing of Rosario Lopez was most likely unintentional, which I don't consider a mitigating factor. Every evening, in fact, those hundreds of batteries imply a crude sadistic ceremonial, here Pasolini turns to his final point. Quote, the impunity of all these years for bourgeois criminals and especially neo-fascists has nothing to envy to the impunity of suburban criminals. So it should be noted that at this time, of course, crime in Italy was in fact skyrocketing, particularly in peripheral neighborhoods like Maliana, from which the notorious gang bearing that name would emerge. That said... I think that the force of domination from upper class onto lower class, which was explicitly admitted by Izzo, by Izzo, rules out part of Pasolini's critique. Albinati takes a somewhat similar line, having grown up with some of the perpetrators in Quartiere Trieste. For him, the revolt that arose after the Circeo horrors was something of petite bourgeois reaction to the excesses of the wealthy. Those who protect their privilege at all costs with the ideology of virtue and piety became immediately shocked at the recognition that their social betters were, in fact, just as morally disgraceful as the poor in the suburbs, as they imagined. For those poor, meanwhile, this was something that was sort of always going to happen. The impunity of the fascists of the upper class was so well understood that it hardly needed to be mentioned. During trial, mobs of feminists would crowd the courtroom and take center stage as the culprits walked to and from the police cars, chanting and cursing at the fascists. Fascists of Circeo, come out now. We'll do it for you. We have a nice trial. The high-priced lawyers insisted that their clients didn't realize that the girls were dead, but it did not help. Meanwhile, Andrea Gira tried to continue perpetrating crimes with other accomplices in their gang. In one event, they tried to rob an Ital gas office, but the thermal lance that they used on the safe caused too much smoke. A bit later, they decide to plot a kidnapping when an associate named Matakioni asks them to kidnap him for a ransom from his parents. They say no because they're planning a different kidnapping, but then Matakioni gets kidnapped for real and they decide now it's time to flee. 
Thus begins Gira's long flight from justice at various points, escaping to North Africa, to East Africa, to Latin America, returning to Italy, and back again. For his part, in 1980, Ito went on to claim credit for a document called A Tactical Analysis, calling for a sort of accelerationist strategy, indiscriminate terrorism, massacres, sniping, all to bring about the destabilization of the system. Nevertheless, Itzo authored something like 100 testimonials, spilling all of his secrets to anyone who would listen for the unending processes of trials over the next decades, always judged unreliable, if not completely insincere. In 1981, Gianni Guido escaped from prison and was arrested two years later in Buenos Aires, selling cars under a false name. A couple of years later, he was injured during another escape attempt, sent to the hospital, and escaped again to be arrested in Panama in 1994, almost 10 years later. During his appeal, the prison system decides Itzo is, quote, suffering from severe depression with suicidal mania and is dangerous for himself, and he's transferred to the Montelupo Fiorentino Psychiatric Hospital. The examiner says, quote, He's a lucid subject, but he manifests personality disorders that affect his adaptability, his possibilities of externalizing his own feelings, which are anchored exclusively on a selfish position. He does not require care. He can go back to the prison of origin. So, Itzo remained in jail, attempting to escape in 1986 and then actually escaping in 1993, but rearrested in France a month later. On September 9, 1994, a man named Massimo Testa de Andres is found dead in a one-room apartment. There's a Bob Marley poster on the wall over his shabby bed, and a keffiyeh is draped over his armchair. His own decomposing body is slumped over a stool with his face planted in a nightstand drawer. He has three tattoos, an arrow through two hearts, with the words Amor Madre below, and there's a syringe under his knee. Thrown into a grave, bundled up with the syringe in his own bed blanket, the man's ignominious death is widely ignored until it comes out that this was likely the body of Andre Aguirre. After exhuming his corpse and testing a femur for genetic proof, investigators returned with confidence the information of the final resting place of Andre Aguirre, dead from a heroin addiction in 1994. It helps to remember the stakes that brought people like Itzo, Guido, and Gira to destroy their own lives. As Albinati writes, quote, Steeped in the myth of the hero, they killed, or got themselves killed, or wound up serving life sentences without parole in order to defend the future rights of matrons in the exclusive neighborhood of Colina Gleming to Double Park. They planted bombs in piazzas in order to make sure those bleached blondes could go to water aerobics classes. They spilled their blood to defend the status quo. As for Itzo, there's a final and incredibly lugubrious postscript to this tawdry story. In 2001, Itzo gained semi-freedom. He convinced everyone that he was a model prisoner, gaining a psych evaluation that reads, quote, I believe that the higher judicial body can at this point consider without fear the hypothesis of granting a premium permit for reopening to this prisoner. After all, in the event that I had doubted his authenticity, his tears, sometimes not really contained despite the effort of self-control, would have served to prove me wrong. Gaining semi-freedom... Itzo writes a book called The Mob and has the subtitle The Pariolini Band. The chapters in the book have headings such as We Are Serial Rapists, Heists in the Bank, Heroin is Beautiful, We Will Burn Them All, Homosexual Rape, and Let's Kill the Girls. It's a kind of sadist tour through his imagination, which a criminologist defined, quote, not as a novel, but as a delusional existential project. Nevertheless, Ito was allowed to work outside at the Chita Futura project, 
founded by an evangelical church and focused on sexual problems as well as families and youth. So, one of the youth who goes to Chita Futura is Luca Palaya, son of Itzo's former cellmate. Now, whether or not Itzo, who's old, overweight, and balding at this point, actually had intercourse with Palaya is a point of contention. But there is something there. Itzo says, quote, I was very impressed by Luca because he was a boy who had had a very difficult life, right? And people who have such difficult life usually get angry. Instead, Luca was a boy who was always smiling, and I was very fascinated with him. And somehow, I was very attached to him, right? But sometimes, I don't want to be misunderstood, right? I kind of had a crush in quotation marks. But here, I want to clarify that he had nothing homosexual. Let's say, practically, it was just a very strong attachment that I had for this boy, a bit like a son here. So, that's not good. And uh, the secretary of Chita Futura, Guido Palladino, later explained that Ito had told him, quote, in relation to Palaya, that he was his type. The Carabinieri found one evening Palaya spending the night in Ito's hotel room, and then Ito was transferred to a different prison. Yet for some ungodly reason, he was taken back into the same program. So it happened that during this period, Itzo met with a woman named Maria Carmela Linciano, known as Antonella, the wife of a man Itzo knew in prison. This guy, a mafia pentito, asked Itzo to look after his wife and daughter on the outside because they were in bad financial straits. Well, Itzo offered to open a restaurant in a villa his parents owned and help them with the proceeds. He then says he entered into a sexual relationship with Antonella and also her 14-year-old daughter, Valentina. Then things took a turn. Antonella asked him to leave the Chita Futura to focus on her, and he began to feel violent. He later explained, quote, Perhaps I myself was the first to deceive myself, thanks to the many people I've met and who have been close to me, thanks to my family, I had come to feel like a new man. Then there was this sudden, unjust, cruel transfer to Pagliarelli. The world collapsed on me. I found myself cut off from affectations, dreams, hopes, and above all, I felt violent again, alone, enraged with the world. It is as if something had broken in my brain. I felt like a need to kill. He brings Pelaya, Antonella, and Valentina to Palladino's grandmother's villa at Ferrazano near Puglia in the province of Campobasso. He tells Pelaya to do what he says, takes the gun up, calls Antonella, tells her to lie down, and he has to search the house for microphones or something, and then he asphyxiates her with a plastic bag. During this time, Luca Pelaya is aghast and he starts to panic. Psychologists would later say that Ito is in a way trying to recreate the Circeo. He would later admit, quote, I realized that I couldn't count on Luca. He was upset. He couldn't speak. I thought, this is not Guido. This is not Gianni Guido. Gianni was a born killer. He was the one who dragged me if there was something to do. I loved Gianni Guido very much. A few days ago, I noticed that at the age of 20, Gianni Guido was kind of a double of Palaya. It's not like I sat down and thought, now I'm going to do the Circeo for Palaya, but I fear that there was something unconscious in this too. From there, he goes to Valentina, puts handcuffs on her, tapes her mouth, and she dies of suffocation. A little while later, Palaya and Palladino are driving home from a trip to Puglia, they're pulled over and found with guns. Cops had been following them, thinking that they were trafficking in weapons and drugs. The cops demand to know where the rest of the weapons are, and Palladino tells them that they're at his grandmother's villa. The police take them there and notice disturbed ground in the area. Palladino mutters, something like, mother and daughter are buried, and police find the bodies with their feet bound and hands in handcuffs. Palladino gets a three-year plea deal, and Palaya gets 24 years for conspiracy to murder, among other charges. Itzo just added a life sentence to his existing term, 
in 2007. In the following year, Gianni Guido is released from prison on good behavior with a pardon. Unfortunately, his surviving victim, Donatella Colasanti, wasn't so lucky. She died in December 2005 of breast cancer at the age of 47. I'll conclude here with the words of Albinati. The Massacre del Circeo is not only a product of its time, but a producer of times, of course, of history, of concepts, of ways of life. Nothing after it remained the same as before. To some degree, it was an event that had been expected. People knew that it could happen, in spite of the fact that no one expected it. And despite what that sounds like, it's not a logical fumble. In those days, people knew perfectly well that unthinkable things would happen. They knew it, but they didn't know exactly what. It seems the same haunting feeling lurks over us today. The same anxiety. The same acknowledgement of deadly forces lying in wait. Ghoulish and ghastly plots. Massacres and school shootings. Perhaps the Chircheo massacre haunts us even more. Because for all its political intrigue, it's a fairly common crime committed, at the end of the day, by psychopaths who could have existed in any other age at any other time, and taken down to the essence of it, it reminds us that in fact unthinkable things will happen. We know that, but we don't know exactly what. Thanks very much for listening. I'm Alexander Reed Ross, and this is the Years of Lead Pod. <laughs>